You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. A few months ago, I spoke with a guest, Dr. Paul Thomas of Plum Health, and I truly misunderstood what direct primary care's value was. I thought it was something for the rich, something for the 1%, 10% club. I didn't realize that it's something that's spreading all over America rapidly and helping employers with a new benefit that allows them to have a direct relationship with a physician and their employees and not have any copay or deductible. So I was turned around and today I'm hoping to do the same thing with value-based care because I don't understand it and I want to understand it. So today is not a debate. It's trying to get clarity around something from an expert that we've had on the show recently. And um, I'm going to welcome uh, Chris Crow back to the show again with Catalyst Health Network. He's a founder and CEO, and he's connected and aligned a network of more than 650 PCPs with nearly a million patients. And the way he describes himself is he's sort of the league commissioner and they're the teams and uh, good league, healthy league, healthy teams, healthy teams, healthy league. His work with Catalyst has led them to be the first North Texas physician network to hold value-based contracts with the top four major private carriers. And to date, since 2016, he's performed with significant savings totaling about $55 million to the communities that are served in North Texas, Oklahoma, and East Texas. Stratify Health, another division, serves over 1,300 providers between their population health and practice service offerings. And these practices manage well over 1.25 million lives and over 5 billion in annual medical expenditures. And Chris tells us he's going to come on the show and announce he's doubling the size as he moves south of Texas to increase his offering. So, Chris, welcome to the show again. Thank you. I'm trying to get my arms around value-based care. Can we just kind of talk from 20,000 feet first and understand that in healthcare, the driver of healthcare is a primary care physician sitting in an exam room with a patient, and those two, um, if they have a good interaction and have a lot of them, that's going to reduce downstream costs enormously. Can, I mean, we, we, you and I both, I think, are big fans of what primary care can do for healthcare costs in general, right? Of course. Well, I think your, your question is the one that, that is semi-unanswerable around what is value-based care. It, it, to me, it's in the same category as asking somebody what is quality. It's certainly in the eye of the beholder. Value-based care in, in healthcare, certainly uh, from a trajectory standpoint, it's far away from what the status quo is. Right now we have a, what we call the fee-for-service healthcare industry, completely transactional, not coordinated, not based on outcomes. It's based on um, the some of the fabric of America, which is uh, capitalism, which has been great for us as a country. And that uh, the more of what you do, the, the better you get at it and the more money you make. Unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily translate into taking uh, care of people in a way, in a holistic way that leads to better health 
and less resource allocation to their health that could be then traded off for other things, like we've said last time, whether that be city services, more R&D or products and companies, better schools, more teachers, after-school programs, more opportunity for philanthropy, all these things that are really important for a community. Healthcare, of course, being one, but it's hogging too much of the resources right now that we have. And the trajectory is, 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 is unstable for sure. So value-based care comes along as a term is to say, hey, how can we bring value to the community and the home? And I like to think of it holistically, but if you broke it down into the components of who, value to who and a value to, to the stakeholders that are in this. And to me, there's only three stakeholders and there's almost only two stakeholders. There's certainly the patient, the human being who's, who is receiving the care is, is obviously a stakeholder. Uh, we would argue that for them to get value, that there's also has to be a value transaction on the side of the, the physician. And the physician in a, in a world that is, that is increasingly getting a, a, an industry that is burned out, we better find a way to make sure the physician has a value in their own terms, which is different from the value that's in the patient terms, but it's a system that actually allows for both. And then the third stakeholder would be who is paying for that care. Sometimes the patient is paying for some of that or all of that directly. A lot of times the government is the payer of, of source. And then many times in America, our corporations or our employers are the payer of source. But if you think about that, what's one degree from the government, the taxpayer, but back to the people. And if you think about the employer, what would the employer do with those dollars if it wasn't going to healthcare? More of it would go to the employee, which is the people. So the people of America either directly or indirectly are, are paying for this care. And so there has to be a value for that constituent in and of itself. And so the system needs to be built around where you have this win, 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 where the value of each stakeholder is considered and actually met. Uh, because if you only get two out of the three, you will, you will continue down a, a, a negative path uh, that, our, that our system has today. So value-based care appears to me to be something generated particularly for Medicare patients that allows physicians who are treating these folks um, to primarily deal with a chronic patient. In other words, 80% of the patients are just fine, thank you very much, leave me alone, give me my annual physical, give me my vaccines. But some of these folks that have chronic conditions that represent maybe 10 or 20% of your patient population and of the Medicare patient population are needing lots and lots of love and attention that haven't got it traditionally through fee-for-service. So what value-based care appears to me to be, in my educated position, is a chronic care plan for somebody who's asthmatic, a chronic care plan for someone who has personality disorders, a chronic care plan for someone who has uh, you know, prediabetes or hypertension or prehypertension. So it appears to be someone that has adequate medication so that they don't have an ER visit and they keep the heads out of the beds that, because it's headed off at the pass in primary care. Am I, am I way off in my thinking? No, I think you're, just, I think you're downstream in a, in a particular example, and I think it's a great one um, to talk about. I mean, for the listeners who, who um, are kind of learning or trying to understand about this, which is how you frame the show, I, I might take it back up one more level again. I don't think it's particularly about Medicare. I think it's about everyone. It's how we think about value for how we're going to deliver care to people in this country in a way that 
um, they get value and they describe value as a, as a patient usually is, as the benefits that I receive minus the cost is of some value to me. And similarly, as whoever's paying for it, the government has something similar. A provider might be that the service that I provide is, re, is uh, the, the transaction I make from a dollar standpoint is a value to me to provide that service. And so we have to think of it in, in terms of that way. And, and you mentioned the chronic care of the 80-20 rule, and, I, and you are correct about that. But you've got to remember that the 80% that may not be chronic very much is subsidizing the 20%. So they actually have a stake in what's going on with the 20% because their premiums are going up based on how those, how those 20% are getting managed. So I just want to make that distinct connectivity of everything before we drop down into what I think is a very good example that you've given. Yeah, the reason I thought of Medicare is because of the ACOs, the accountable care organizations that are now receiving X dollars per head from the feds. And if you can keep your cost $1 below that, you make a profit in your position. Um, if you spend a dollar more, then you're at risk. So this is, I think, one of the misconceptions that docs have is that they don't want to get into a system that could penalize them for something they feel like they don't have as much control over. And in, in the last show, you talked a lot about um, the strategies for med compliance, for adherence, for uh, compliance to go see the, the specialist, how you handle that handoff beautifully. And I think a lot of physicians say, you know, it's the patient, stupid. I can't control them. And you're saying, no, actually, you can control that. And, um, uh, and you can get your costs down and have control over your costs so that you can make a profit and say an accountable care organization. That's, that's, that's exactly right. So ACOs are a, a, a middle step, a middle step in this move to value. The, um, you got to think of the thing I think about is the care delivery model that we have today is built for the financing model we have today. So if we're going to change the financing model to value and put more risk on the providers, and it's not about a transaction, it's about a dollar figure for a population that you need to care, keep healthy, you got to think about the care delivery model that, that would be required for that would be very different than the one that we have today. So what we're stuck with is we're in this in-between moment where we have the majority of our financing model in this fee-for-service and our care delivery models in America have been built to do that, which is more more, more, more. In value-based care, it's built to do better and have better value to all the different stakeholders. But the care delivery models have, have, are on the tip of this, just the tip of the spear at Catalyst, for example, and these ACOs of what's needed to be developed to actually be able to perform in a financial model that is rewarding value and has risk inherent in it. And so what we are doing at Catalyst Health Network is absolutely building and have built many of those capabilities that ultimately provide value to the patient and better, actually better care delivery, better outcomes, a healthier constituency, which by definition does not cost as much as one that is unhealthy when you're proactive versus a reactive care all the time. And it's actually super satisfying to the primary care physicians who are now leveraging the relationship they have longitudinally to get credit for all the things that they do in a relationship with a patient over time to help them maintain health and have a system built that actually is longitudinal around that relationship at, rather than the system that most primary care are in right now, which is 
see 25, 30 patients a day as a transaction in your exam room because that's the only place you get paid is inside that exam room. We are morphing that in these ACOs, and you see that with, with, with the dollars being paid out for Medicare. We'll go back to right to your example now. That's exactly what Medicare is trying to do. They're trying to change the financial model so that the providers will change their delivery model. And, and what you're finding is in that data, Ron, is that the, that the, the, the physician-led, specifically the primary care-led ACOs are having a much better success like I think the data says like seven or eight times better than the hospital-led ACOs. And it's a really easy answer why. Because the hospital ACOs have a business model that fundamentally needs to have people in bed to make revenue. There's no other, that's been the business model and, it, and for them to actually change their business model and get paid for having people not in bed is not gonna work because those, those, those big buildings and all that administration, all that staff has to get funded some way, and, and, and their business model just doesn't work for that. However, for your primary care physicians upstream who have a long-term relationship, if the incentives are aligned to help them keep being health, healthier and getting paid for that, that is actually exactly down the middle of the way a physician would like to care for patients, which is why the burnout can actually go down. That instead of practicing in a business model that is in, it is in, in conflict with the way they want to care for patients. You now have a business model, as long as they're resourced with the tools and the technology to have this relationship-based care be given, they're going to have a, a much better, much better outlook of, uh, of their career. The patients are going to have a much better outcome in how they live their lives. And whoever's paying for that, whether it be the government or an employer, is going to have a much better return on their investment. Uh, of those dollars. That's the win-win-win we're looking for. Yeah, but it seems like there's a perverse incentive built in. If I'm a practice, a PCP practice that just sold to a major system, and I'm being pressured to refer patients in to that system, and at the same time, I'm of the uh, Hippocratic Oath trying to do no harm, but also trying to make patients' lives better, it seems like those two goals are in conflict with each other. Completely agree. That's exactly what I was saying is that, that these, the health system, hospital system run um, ACOs have that inherent conflict that are direct, which is why you haven't seen them perform as well as the physician led, the ones, the ones that are outside the health system. Those ACOs like Catalyst are the ones that are actually um, making the move to value and having better success because they don't, for the exact reason you highlighted, they don't have that inherent conflict. In fact, it removes the inherent conflict that fee-for-service has had all these years on those primary care physicians and moves them into a financial model that actually rewards them for the relationships they build with their patients and the trust they build with their okay. patients. So my next question is not meant to be argumentative. It's, again, just totally trying to understand this model here is it appears there's two big problems with value-based care that I don't have my mind wrapped around. The first one is it does not appear to move the dial on outcomes. It sounds wonderful keeping heads out of beds, but it doesn't seem overall to be actually improving outcomes. But your experience, I'll bet, is different from that, or you wouldn't keep doing this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, agree. It, I agree. It's completely lumpy, Ron. I mean, you know, the, the future is actually here in a lot of places. It's just not evenly distributed. So it, has to, it depends on what you read and, where, and what you see. Um, but there's certainly lots of examples, especially now that we're almost 10 years into this, and 
uh, more and more examples of if you're going to call an outcome a reduced amount of hospitalizations for a population, reduced ER utilization for a population, higher amounts of preventive uh, cancer screenings, higher amounts of controlled diabetics or asthmatics. You know, there is plenty of pockets where that is happening. It's usually in those settings that I men mentioned earlier, it's, but it absolutely is not happening everywhere. And, and the reason for that is, is, again, at least threefold. One, the business models are in direct conflict. Two, the, there has not been enough resources invested into the infrastructure to actually change the delivery model to win in that type of financing mechanism. And then finally, the financing models have not put enough pressure from a risk standpoint, which is what you see the government trying to do now, put enough pressure on the, on the provider community to actually make those investments that are needed, that are known from people and technology analytics and population to do population health better, the financial model is having to push on the care delivery model. It's the classic chicken and egg. Will the care delivery model change before the financial model? Or will, is the financial model required to change so that the care delivery model can follow? You're seeing that happen across the country in starts and stops. Yes, I, I love your lumpy mattress uh, model. It's, it really explains things that you have pockets of excellence. I, I was reading, uh, uh, a director of Harvard Globe Health Institute uh, talk he gave at AMA a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how people in America love to compare Denmark healthcare to American healthcare. And he says, let's remember that Denmark's about the size of Chicago, <laughs> that we really can't compare, we can compare Hawaii to Denmark and we stand up nicely, but you can't compare the averages of America to the averages of a country with 6 million people. It's just not fair. You can compare Minnesota to Sweden or Denmark, but don't don't play games. And so I think what you're saying is people are lumping in the bad and the good results and saying uh, DBC is not, uh, is not working. And, you, and you're saying it works in pockets. So let me, let me ask another question. So we know now from talking to you that outcomes are better in pockets. What about the cost overall of DBC? Has it got the same problem? Because every analysis that I've seen, and again, and this may be the fee-for-service choir singing hallelujah here, but it appears that if every ACO added value-based care, that we would move the dial about three to four billion dollars on a five hundred billion dollar um, deficit for Medicare. Is that true, or are we, again, looking at averages incorrectly? Well, if we did on that map, it would be less than one percent. And I think all of us are will you know will will make one percent investments to potentially make long-term gains um, at, at that math. Um, but yeah, there, there, there might be an initial, but, but like anything worthwhile, you know, it, it absolutely has to be looked at as an investment. We, we, we do that with our own money. We do that how we save for college because we think there's a, there's a payment out. I mean, so, so that's a normal thing for American capitalism is to invest in what we think is a better future. And that's exactly what has, has to happen. That gets into that chicken or egg thing. I do think the financing model has to come first and there has to be some investment to, to actually change the care delivery. And what I would say about value-based care over the last 10 years, Ron, is that not only is it still lumpy, as you said, but, but there's more and more of those pockets. The stories get better and better. What you find is, is that the story that was good in 2015 gets a little better than 16, and then it gets a little better in 2017, and it gets a little better in 2018. And so you have more, you know, five years ago, there was very few stories, but then you're starting to see them come in and now they're more than a trickle. 
you, you'd be hard pressed to not find most areas of the country have some good stories of value-based care. Again, they generally have the, the, uh, the, 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 the category of a, a non-health system. I would tell you there's, a, ex, there's exclusions to that, like a Geisinger or an Intermountain Health, or places like that where they've actually, it, it's actually a physician-led Mayo Clinic. They've, they've built in a model that it doesn't reward more it rewards better. And so those systems are better able to handle that kind of stuff. So there also there's the velocity of news that's, that's improving as well, but to, for it to, for it to just come across the country, you know, in one year, you know, while you and I would probably like for that to happen. It, it, and, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I thought we'd be there by now. It, I, I think we're still in for another, another five to 10 year March before you start to see the, the, the full, um, you know, rapid utilization of this across the board. And what happens in the meantime is there's probably going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth at the at the hospital level, quite frankly. You know, you you should have when you have your family reunion of the Geisingers and the Mayos and and the Stratifies. When you don't have your family reunion, and don't invite the Hicks to bring the story down because the 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 yokels are messing up your story. Is what I'm getting from this. So you you guys need to get the message out that this is working, and here's the numbers we're seeing when people do it right. And I think again, mixing bad results with good results is like taking. Uh, I mean, it's just it's faulty logic. So um, let me ask you a question to shift gears a little bit because value based care. I think most physicians listening to this that aren't doing it are saying this is too big and too onerous and too much reporting and too much software and I can't handle that and I think you are making um, some pilot programs into working with some of the smaller physicians so that you can bring your c-suite to the smaller primary care docs and specialists now aren't you yeah that's the whole thesis of our uh, of our business is to how can you bring the, the power um, and the passion of the independent physician, the primary care physician who has these long-term relationships with the patients and support it in a platform that can serve all of them in a way that can lead to a better, uh, um, an augmented relationship for them and their patient that leads to better outcomes and a, and a better value for all. That's exactly what we do. And you're right that an individual physician practice, a small practice would never be able to have the investment um, uh, capital to put in you know, a pharmacy, a pharmacist, technology, analytics, an extra care coordinator. I mean, that's just heavy, heavy, heavy. But also to your point, Ron, is that remember, you know, only 10 to 20% of their patients may need it at any given time, right? So what you can do in a business model like ours is, is, is create a scaled platform that can be shared by all, by many, that's 650 going to 700 um, and, and probably will will go over a thousand uh, in, in 2020 for sure. Then they can share in that, and it becomes more and more powerful uh, as more and more people come on the platform. And then so this story of value-based care for the for the physician and the patient and the payer continues to then be able to be spread and felt uh, until hopefully you know at some point soon we reach a we reach a tipping point uh, into where. Um, there's a there's a massive shift in uh, uh, in the models across the country to where you know the next generation of kids that are going through grade school right now and become a physician they just grow up into a model that's already built uh, to provide value for all. Okay, well let me shift again into a little slightly different direction. In my grandfather's time, seventy percent of all 
matriculating doctors went into primary care because there weren't as many specialists. And then my dad's generation, that number cut to about 30%. Um, and my generation, it was about 16% chose primary care. And today, the numbers look like they're in the 2 to 6% range. So they just keep having. If your children came to you and said, I want to go into primary care, would you uh, encourage them to do that with what you know from your um, lofty tower? Because, you, again, you have a, a, a quite an overview of primary care that most don't have. You know, I get asked that question quite a bit, and my answer has evolved over time. And Ten years ago, I would have said no. Um, but really, in the last year or two, um, I have evolved on that because I've seen the wave that's coming. I've seen the, 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 the success that we've had, the impact it's meant to our patients. I hear the stories. I see them. Um, the results are there. The physicians and their lower burnout discussions and how they talk about their satisfaction is, is improving. I, I just see the wave coming and it, and absolutely primary care will continue to be uh, one of the most um, irreplaceable piece, pieces of the care delivery system. And if you look at what's happening with technology, the one thing technology can't do is replace a, a good long lasting relationship, a trusted relationship. We don't have that with technology. Heck, technology moves so fast that, you know, the, the Ataris of yesterday, you know, and Nintendos of yesterday are now the Xboxes of tomorrow. Technology moves so fast, but I still have the relationship with my old primary care doctor for 20 years, right? And so that's not going to be replaceable by technology. However, many of the things in medicine will be, tech, will be replaced, but a relationship about how to care for yourself um, in the years to come with, with, with genomics, and gene splicing and DNA test. I mean, all this different technology that's coming down the pipe. To, to, you're going to need a trusted resource that's not technology. It can be aided by technology, augmented by technology, but you're going to need a trusted resource to help you through these decisions throughout your life. And, and a long-lasting primary care relationship is going to be the core of that. And so absolutely. And let me tell you this, you know, all of us that have meaningful long-term relationships, we know how that feels. And so to tell your child, guess what? You get to go to work every day and have a vocation that's a calling as a healer. And you're going to get to have really good, long-lasting relationships with other human beings in this world. What's a, what's a better way to spend the one life you have than that? I, um, I want to tie that question into my next question, which, Chris, is about shortages in primary care. I don't... Um, Having talked to now 50 guests on this show this year, our inaugural year, I've concluded we're not going to have a primary care shortage. We have an efficiency problem. We have about half a million PCPs and mid-levels that are in, the, in our universe. And we have 330 million Americans, and it's, that's about 660 patients per PCP. So it seems like we have shortages because the rural situation and the urban crime-ridden areas where there's deserts of primary care but the, this, the, the telehealth adoption rates to address your technology issue are only 1% right now. So you are not practicing anymore, but of the 1,500 that are in your universe, they can see a lot more patients than 20 or 25 a day if they engage by telehealth and they all now have a good patient record and they can um, have more of a personal relationship and an ongoing relationship, particularly with the chronic patients. Um, with technology. So do you see this shortage as artificial or do you think it's real? I think the shortage is real in the current state of healthcare delivery, but you touched on a couple of things. I would say um, uh, it's got to be integrated care. 
with a, a, a team-based care model that is integrated and aided with technology. That, that's what I would say. And, and you were kind of talking around that with telemedicine and advanced practitioners and nurse practitioners. You know, we need to have, uh, you know, we use the team-based care model to surround that physician-patient relationship and then augment it with technology. We absolutely believe the primary care physicians of tomorrow absolutely can take care of way more patients they have today in an integrated primary, advanced primary care team-based model that's supported by technology. You, 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 would, you would think of your panel as a dashboard and you would be able to modulate your day and your expertise and, and your teams based on the needs of, of that population. That, that day is coming and it should be, but you're right, today it's super inefficient because remember the financing models are built for you to do transactions, not do population health. So the financing models are actually driving the care models. And so that's why this, there's, there's a disconnect over value-based care. We have to pay for that population health to where it rewards efficient, effective delivery for, for care for many, for the many, which means you have to do it in teams. Teams always perform better than individuals, always. Are there Chris Crows in other metros around the country? Because, again, for those of us who are concerned about what's going on with the burnout issues and the medical layers as practices get acquired by big systems, uh, it seems like you're sort of the finger in the dike to keep the floods uh, at bay. Because there's been more acquisitions of primary care practices in the past seven years than in the past 27 years combined. So it's just been this voracious appetite for acquisition of referrals. And other than you know, catalyst and stratify strategies, are there any other things to keep independence independent other than you, in your opinion? What's out there that's um, making systems pause in their acquisition ferocity? Yeah, I think there's, a, I, I think there's, there's, there's um, lots of other uh, examples, some that I don't know and some that I read about and, and, uh, and some that I know personally. I mean, to, to kind of give you some examples, there's there's Village MD um, that's in several places across the country that is all about empowering primary care. Uh, they have mo they're in multiple states. You know their their lead physician Clive Fields is someone we know well that does some great things. I think of uh, another geography outside of my own, um, uh, Central Ohio Primary Care up in. Uh, uh, up in Columbus, Ohio, is doing some marvelous things, um, and they are continuously independent. In fact, they're helping the rest of the state um, become more on on their platform to be able to, to remain independent for their community. So, you know, those are two off the top of my head. There's there's other pockets of of new primary care delivery that are more private equity backed type things that I, I worry about because. Because they're all going after the Medicare Advantage patients, and that private equity, you know, has has a clock on it that needs uh, needs a return. So I, I'm I'm not sure about how that plays out as a long term business model. Uh, but then there's other there's just other stories coming out of North Carolina this uh, this year is uh, a big group that has was left the system, and they're and they're creating a big big group and of independent physicians, and they're doing well in a state that's really pushing value based in a in a in a state and private type of uh, um, coalition, so so yeah, there's 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 certainly good stories out there. Um, I'm on the board of a of a company called Medoctor that just is independent and works in the Medicaid space for pediatrics, and they're the largest private provider of Medicaid in the state of Texas, and and they do great great work and are are being successful in the 
uh, as, as a private company. So there's, there, there's lots of them out there. Most of us are too busy to actually do and don't have a marketing budget, quite frankly. And if you think about the health system, especially the not-for-profits, they got to, they got to, they're tax exempt. They got to spend a lot of revenue. So they have massive marketing machines. The, the stories that are great generally aren't marketing. They're out there just doing the hard work. Um, and so that's, that's why you don't necessarily hear them as much. Well, there's always more to talk about. Unfortunately, we've got so much of your time and uh, have used it all. I look forward to future discussions and I'm glad we keep teed this one up because I think I have a better understanding now that I didn't before about value-based care, and uh, uh, it's clearly something that's part of our future when done correctly, and it sounds like it's being done correctly all over the country now with uh, pockets. So uh, thank you again, Chris. If people want to find Catalyst or Stratify, how do they go to the web and find you guys? Just like that. You go to the, you go to the web and you find Catalyst or Stratify, and you, and you will absolutely find us, and uh, there's, there's lots more uh, you know, other videos and other informational items uh, about us. And, you know, Ron, I just want to thank you for your uh, continued dedication to primary care in this country because it's important work you do. Well, it's easy to do when we have good guys like Clive and you in the field. So thanks for what you do as well. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, Help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.